When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What's up, Geekscape? It's welcome to our brand new Geekscape, and I think I've almost got that intro down. We're going through StreamYard again, and uh, I'm just kind of getting used to things. Obviously, the pandemic allowed me to uh, kind of start looking at options for doing Geekscape, and I said, hey, what about this streaming thing, and what about going to, like, multiple platforms at once? And it might be to the detriment. I don't know, but... Uh, this is Geekscape. If this is your first Geekscape, we're going to be talking movies, video games, comic books, pop culture, all of that stuff. I like to sit down with a guest because no one really wants to hear me by myself. Um, and we'll be bringing that guest in shortly. That's what we do every uh, episode. And I hope you guys have been enjoying it. There's been a lot of episodes. We've done four or five in the last week. Um, but it's ranged from everything from uh, movies to comics to uh, video games to music, like we've kind of run the gamut. Oh, <laughs> we also talked a lot of basketball. We've been talking about that Jordan uh, Last Dance documentary. So I had a little bit of jockscape going on here. So that worked. Um, but who knows what's going to be on this uh, on this channel? If you guys are listening to this on the podcast, there might be some visual stuff that is only on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook that doesn't make it to the feed. For example, I think that Heidi's going to cut my hair live on the stream on Thursday. It's getting a little warm out here in Los Angeles, and uh, I have to go running at like 6 a.m. Uh, before the heat in order to avoid other people, social distancing, but also because it's really damn hot now. And uh, this is the longest my hair has been in years. And uh, without the the headphones, I kind of I'm starting to get like this Isaac Asimov um, sort of thing. Let me just let me just show you guys. Um, my, my sideburns are getting a little out of control, but. Uh, before I go full Isaac Asimov, I kind of need her to cut my hair and she's been wanting to do it, but I think why not throw a little wrench in things and have it, uh, done live and you guys can leave comments and let us know if she's doing a good job. Maybe tell her like a little bit to the left, a little more off the front. You guys, you know, it'll be like Twitch plays Pokemon, but you guys will be deciding a little bit of the haircut. I'm just going to warn you. She's, she's plugging into whatever the hell she wants, but 
let's at least pretend that you guys have a say in things because ultimately you only have to see my haircut for an hour. She's got to deal with it through this quarantine. Okay. So really she should just be giving me a full face mask or something. That might be the best solution. Uh, so that's coming up on Thursday podcast listeners. You're not going to, want that it's not gonna be fun at the same time i'm interviewing people for the podcast and that stuff doesn't usually show up on the stream if they only want to do something over zencaster or something that's audible so if you haven't subscribed to the geekscape podcast well that's probably why you're here because you subscribe to the geekscape podcast but vice versa some stuff's going to go video some stuff's going to go audio we're going to feel our way through these things but we're going to keep bringing you stuff all right let me tell you about my guest. His name is Dan Merrill. He uh, used to be on Screen Junkies. That's how I met him. I was one of their panelists, uh, panelists, one of their experts that he'd bring in to talk about, well, comic books and movies, the things that we talk about here on Geekscape. And over the years, we just kind of talked here and there. Uh, maybe I'd see him at a convention. Uh, I think I did Terminal of the Nerds once at a WonderCon. Is that Screen Junkies? I think that's Screen Junkies. I think Dan's involved with that, definitely. Um, and every now and then, I'd come into Screen Junkies and give an opinion. But to me, Dan was like, the Screen Junkies guy, because uh, he's, no offense to the other Screen Junkies guys, he seemed to be the guy who knew what was up. <laughs> he definitely, uh, whenever I talked to him, he knew movies. He uh, just had a faculty for this stuff. And then I look up uh, a couple weeks ago, and Dan had started his own YouTube channel. And maybe we'll talk about uh, why he uh, started his own thing and left Screen Junkies behind. I don't know. Uh, Geekscape's clearly my thing, and you guys remember way back in 2006 when we used to be part of Revision 3? It's time to do this. It's time to do your own thing. Let's talk to Dan about it. Um, maybe he's waiting right now to come on the show. Let's let's go ahead and add him. Uh, here he is. Uh, Dan, how are you doing, man? Welcome to Geekscape. I'm good. How are you? It's, it's good to be here. I wish I could take uh, credit for Tournament of Nerds. That's all. That was all Hal Rudnick and uh, Justin Donaldson. But we, but there was a lot of crossover. It was, it was like a lot of crossover. Was, yes, and I, and I love Hal. Um, Hal's Hal's the guy who brought me in, and I and I like Hal. And and Heidi, you'll remember Hal as the guy who uh, Heidi's behind me. Check her out. There she is. <laughs> it's kind of like the thing we do now on the show. Um, but that's what happens when the studio is in. Uh, Heidi's quarantine bedroom. <laughs> uh, so yeah, how how's uh, how's great? And I remember at Comic Con one year, uh, we ran into Hal on the street corner, and he was eating pizza. And he's like, "Hey, man, what's up?" And every like medium sized white dude with dark hair that we've run into at every industry thing <laughs> since, whether it's Comic Con or a screening, she's like, "Is that the guy from Comic Con?" We've never seen <laughs> Hal he's again. Funny he, he's just a funny guy. She remembers him as being the funny guy. He's like happy. And he was drinking coconut water with his pizza. Oh, that's right. Oh, he, yeah. He, you know, so Al Rudnick has been he he uh, preached. Uh, he's been preaching the gospel of coconut water to me for years now. He loves that coconut water. Are you not a coconut water guy? I, I, I'll it have it. I'll have it. But it's <laughs> like he he he. For me, it was because I, and and it actually worked. He's like he's like he's like Dan. If you're gonna drink too much the next morning, drink coconut water. So it actually it actually worked. Yeah, I figure the dehydration thing. Uh, you geeks, this this may be news to you, uh, Dan, but not to the geekscapes. I don't drink, um, but uh, it, I'm often dehydrated, and coconut water is a good one. So, mm-hmm. so far we're doing okay. We're 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 pimping coconut water. Yeah. Uh, so uh, <laughs> this is my first time doing this streaming thing, and we've got the Twitch, the YouTube, the Facebook. And then Periscope. Now, you listen, you're an expert on the streaming stuff. You worked for a, uh, a streamer for years. Uh, Periscope, 
still a thing, Dan? I, I will say that I, I have not personally used it in, in a while. I know that the, for us, it was uh, it was kind of a, I don't want to say a fad, but I'd say right around 2016, <laughs> 2015, uh, late 2015. But uh, I'm sure there are many wonderful uh, uh, and devoted Periscope users who still use it. So I would say it's it's established. It just reminds me of when we were at uh, South by Southwest, I think 2010 or earlier, and everybody was like, hey, man, you got to get on that Meerkat. And about after South West, it was never a meerkat again, except in jokes and reference to the show. But we, you know, uh, Raymond, I think your full name is Ray. Uh, he just checked in and said uh, Periscope for the win. So at least we have Ray watching on on Periscope. So there you go. Good. Um, so what a time to start your own YouTube channel talking about film criticism. Yeah, <laughs> not part of the plan. <laughs> Um, it, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, and, and the reason that I'm okay with going into detail on any of this is because it really was the most amicable sort of, if you want to call it a split, but parting of ways that you can imagine in the sense that, you know, it was, it was planned as we talked about it. We went through the steps, you know, there was no cloak and dagger stuff. Uh, it was all above board. And uh, the one thing that was not planned was the timing of this. But at the same time, it, it, I would be here working from home now, regardless. So uh, it, it definitely gave us a little more time to prep the studio. And uh, it's been a change of pace, which when you're looking for to grab onto anything at all, the, the change of pace has been uh, certainly reinvigorating. Um, but yeah, it is, it is quite the time to be at home working, uh, while with everyone else, uh, unexpectedly. Well, let's talk about it because you've kind of seen the full like gamut of people with their individual channels and some channels starting out small and turning huge and then being absorbed by MCNs and like the whole multi-channel network thing. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing these different kind of like corporate energy entities i don't know where they come from i know that they get their funding and it's almost like there's gold in them hills and they just kind of come out of nowhere they buy the channel that you work for and then things start changing you know uh collider for instance had a a big turnover in january because everybody on the web wants to see what works and what doesn't work and if things don't work within a very small window the strategy is out the window and it almost like begs the question and dan you're the guy who knows a little bit more about this than i do I just sit here and read comics. Um, is there ever really a strategy with this stuff? Well, I mean, it's it's. I think that the the idea of gold mining is a is a is an apt uh, metaphor because it is you know it's all it, it seemed like it was all about speculation. It's you're either buying a channel that's established and and that you're going to be able to monetize at scale or. You're building something that you think, but is going to be able to monetize at scale. And I think that that's why a lot of the, you know, we we escaped, for lack of a better word, Defy Media uh, very shortly before they literally went out of business overnight uh, when we were bought by Fandom. And But we were still working in the same building and we saw that happen like literally next door to us. And I think what they struggled with from from what I've read in the articles and from what I've read everywhere else and, and talked to friends uh, who who are now most most of them thankfully have have landed elsewhere and most of them with with the same channels is it's this question of how you know you know that there's money to be made and you can project how much money is going to be made but you can't it's not like uh, 
a lot of other markets where the, it's things are set in stone. There's so many variables. If YouTube changes its algorithm, that can vastly change uh, how much money is coming in from ad revenue and stuff like that. Or uh, Facebook was a huge game changer when when it seemed like, and now it seems like it, it, they were they were they were uh, overblown by a, a huge proportion. But when it, it looked like the the future was video on Facebook, that changes an entire business model. And then when that doesn't pan out, that changes an entire business model. So. I, the challenge, I think, in trying to build a digital media business, um, particularly one that is like like one of these MCNs, uh, where you're housing several different networks, you're pumping a lot of money into programming, you're pumping a lot of money into overhead and staff and HR and every, you know everything else. Those are great jobs to have for people that wouldn't normally have them if they were just running a YouTube channel from their house. But you, you run the risk of, of not being able to monetize it, 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 it in time. Or figure that strategy out, and I, I don't. I don't envy anyone who has to do that strategizing because it is literally like building something on quicksand in the sense that you never know when the bottom is going to drop out of a particular element, and you're going to have to rethink everything. So, uh, you know, this this is a time of great fluctuation in this in this in this industry, and I think that's why you're seeing a return in a lot of ways to people doing stuff from their homes, people doing this on their own as, as, as independent channels, because for a lot of companies, they were not able to crack the code on how to consistently uh, monetize all of these channels. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, Hey, listen, a lot of people got jobs for a very long time because of it. But at the same time, a lot of people uh, lost those jobs. Um, some of them very suddenly defy media I had a lot of friends at Collider that just were told one day that they didn't have a job anymore uh, because they were changing their strategy. Um, it's it's a very it's a very unstable business, I guess is what I would say. Buy stock in Periscope. <laughs> just gonna, I'm just I'm just taking notes. I was listening to what you're saying, and the, I mean, I figure if it's as much a crapshoot here as there is there, you know, like. Ray says a buy stock in Periscope. I might just the Periscope thing might it might come back. It might be the thing where you know, like when Justin Timberlake came back to MySpace and tried to turn it into like just a full social network for music fans. And exactly, I think that lasted a few hours on a on a on a Thursday. And yeah, and then you know, it's like you no, know, you're never going to get that investment back on MySpace. Oh, uh, I just remember when I first started getting into this whole idea of the MCNs was our friends at Machinima. And Machinima was kind of my entry into that because I had created some shows for Fox and Fox Television Studios looked up and uh, I don't know, I can talk about this stuff. Uh, it was 2007, 2008. I had developed these two shows for Fox and their whole goal was to get them on the Xbox network. Remember when Spielberg came out and was like, we're going to make a Halo show on the new Xbox at the time, 360 like it's going to be the 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 center of your entertainment system at home it's going to be your entertain you know your it's all going to go through the xbox and we're going to have basically our own netflix type thing and it never happened at the same time there were studios like fox television studios which is now not a thing it wasn't a thing before disney it got absorbed um they were going out and trying to make short form content you know and they were they were they were influenced by things like felicia day making the guild and stuff like that and they were like hey Let's make short form content. I remember making two shows for them. And one day I'm filming in Kenneth Han Park and one of the executives from Fox shows up and I'm like, they're usually not here. They usually, and they said, Hey, <laughs> Xbox ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly there's no, you know, you've spent tons of money on these things and there's nowhere to land. Yeah. And 
that seemed like the first uh and and so what we did was we pivoted uh i think that stuff all ended up on hulu for a short amount of time for a couple of years but it, i remember meeting the guys at machinima we talked about making short form content there and then slowly when machinima was over on gower do you remember them when they were over on gower in hollywood and it was just like they, i think they were renting space out of the hollywood production center and i then, do know i know the hollywood production center so they used to rent these offices out of there and i'd go and meet with them and talk about what we could make and then one day Suddenly they're in that office on Santa Monica mm-hmm. in West Hollywood. And it's super nice. And it was when they got that influx of cash. And suddenly the, there's like really nice cars in the parking lot. And you can't just walk in and talk to your friends. There's new dudes and new guys in charge. And you realize they all came from like, no offense to them, middle management Hollywood kind of thing. And I don't think they knew what the parts were. So like they wanted the head to move or they wanted the leg to move, but they didn't really know really what the audience was, was connected to. It just seemed like this influx of cash was, we got to get people who know what they're doing. And they went to almost an entirely different industry to find those people. Yeah. I I had a friend of mine who made a a web series on his own. That was very popular that, that, that went, you know, viral i guess uh, that's that's kind of an outdated term at this point but but you know it got yeah. very organic popularity and he would talk about the fact that he got called in you know brands would call him in he probably did f- five to ten or however many meetings uh and they would all be like okay now we want you to come make a viral video for us or tell us how to make a viral video it's like that you can't i can't i can't sit here and tell you how to make something that's organically popular that's the point is you just make it and you see but 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 that's not a business strategy because they're like well no how do we guarantee success like and that's yeah. that's always been the struggle when you talk about people coming in because this, if someone sees something that's popular then they think that you can make a lot of money off of it which you which maybe you can but but also it's tough to tell somebody who's not necessarily in the business of making stuff and knowing how the internet works who's been doing other types of traditional media for decades like i can't guarantee you that it's going to be good we can't market test it i can't i you know it, it, it's it's completely it's it's up to luck sometimes it's luck and if it gets picked up on reddit or it doesn't get picked up on reddit or if the right person tweets it or doesn't tweet it like it's so ephemeral but People want to guarantee success, and so they they think that by flooding all of this all of this money into something, they can guarantee that it's going to be success. And that doesn't necessarily always work. It'd be great if it did because it keep a lot of people more consistently employed. But you know, we we had a we started a streaming service at Screen Junkies back in twenty fifteen. Screen Junkies Plus. We were what we were the first plus streaming streaming service, <laughs> and uh, we were we were ahead of our time. Uh, but what we always struggled to to sort of get get across was, you know, we had full control over the programming, but the we didn't have control over, you know, things like, you know, like it was all app based and the app didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so it was launching and the app didn't work. And so we're losing our minds because we're saying like this app doesn't work. But they're saying like, oh, don't worry, we'll fix it as it goes along. You know, it, it, we'll fix it in a few months. And, you know, yeah. we're saying like you don't understand it's going to be too late in a few months because if we launch and people can't watch what we're doing, it doesn't matter what we're doing in a few months. And we could never get that message across. And that's largely what happened was we launched with the product that we were happy from a create with, from a creative standpoint, but the technology wasn't there. We couldn't get that message across that you have to wait. Cause they're like, we can't wait. We've already pushed the date once. It's like, then it's going to be more expensive because you're going to launch something that doesn't work. 
And that's and you what have to happens. backwards engineer all of that stuff. You yeah. have to then go back and be like, and conform it to something that uh, the ship has already left. Right. It's already halfway across the Atlantic when you're like, wait, uh, we need to fix the rudder. Right. Or, it's already taking on water. You can't just start patching holes then. It's halfway across the Atlantic. Yeah, and, and so that's the. Str- I think that's always the struggle is when you're when you're bringing in people to make stuff, and you have a kind of a more traditional power structure. It's that thing of just like people saying like, "Okay, we're going to make you operate like we do." And it's like, no, you need to operate like we do because you know it, it may be more chaotic and it may be less organized than you're used to, but that's also sort of a lot of times how it works. But I think that's largely why you're seeing, unfortunately a lot of these places sort of they expanded at a massive rate and now they're contracting at a, at a, at a massive rate because it's this idea of trying to apply a traditional sensibility to new media, which is almost impossible. People can do it on an individual level a lot more easily than a company can do it at a company wide level. It's just, I just think it's too unstable. It's, it's so difficult to do. Well, you'd think that people in the film industry, and maybe this is just a lesson to middle management film executives, period, because it doesn't seem like it's a lesson that is, you know, uh, is is learned very often. But it's almost like they want the film industry or any creative industry to work like the Ford assembly line. Mm-hmm. And it's not, but yet make a unique product every single time. And yeah. it, I think that it's m- multiplied a th- over when you go to something that is so particularly niche based as the internet right like the, like a marvel movie ain't going to save you on the internet it, it might save you at the box office in in uh in hollywood but then you got something like a dcu or something like that where you think you have an avengers but you got a justice league or you think that you know there's there's all these problems to creating this content by committee and creating this content uh, in some kind of formulaic way and expecting to have the Ford assembly line. It's not the Ford assembly line. These are unique things for a constantly shifting audience with constantly shifting needs. And as we see right now in the middle of a pandemic, no one really knows how to predict the box office going on right now. And when you go to this, the web where people are that much more into smaller idiosyncratic niche content, it gets even harder to hit the target. And they're still shooting at it with fucking like bazookas or yeah. nets. And they need to be doing the precision sniping thing. I mean, and I think that's, you know, screen junkies initially grew when, you know, we, when I started, uh, there was maybe three or four people that worked on it and not, and then not even full time. And we kind of grew and established ourselves at a time when we were not a priority for the company. At that time, it was break media. They had a lot of other stuff going on. They were in MCN. Uh, they, we were sort of a pet project on the side. And then as it got more popular, what we were doing, we became the focus. Um, but then when we became the focus, then it sort of became like, okay, now you're going to start operating a little bit more like we do. And it's like, well, no, or you could trust us to do what we're going to do. And, you know, but, but everybody answers to somebody. And right. so it, it's, it's just like, it's a constant struggle. But I, I will say when, when, when we were bought by fandom, um, one of the things that I really respected that they said well, right out of the yeah, gate was kind of choppy there, Dan, at least on my oh, side, sorry. you're a little bit choppy. You're reconnecting. Hold okay. on. Geekscape. There you are. Okay. I got you back. I got um, you back. No, I was just saying that when we were purchased by fandom, when screen junkies and, purchased by fandom, 
Nope. No, 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 no. Okay. You're you're there. You're good. Um, (laughs) I was like, he's gone. You're good. One of the things I loved was that, you know, they sort of said, hey, we're new in the video space and you're our video team. And so, you know, we're obviously going to strategize. But for now, you guys do what you do. And and that's largely what we did for a while. Uh, you know, and, and that's great. I think that's the, I think that's the right attitude to have when you, when you bring in a team, a video team that has had success in the past is, you know, we're going to be a little flexible on our end because we're going to trust you to know what works and then we'll develop a strategy together, which is ultimately what, you know, what, what happened and what is happening. When you have something like uh, these different uh, initiatives, right? Like, let's say, let's just take Collider for an example. Uh, in January, they let a lot of their panelists go. Yeah. Um, because, but they had this other thing going on there where they had these deep fakes, right? Where they would use this deep fake technology to fake other, uh, uh, you know, celebrity impersonators and things like that. And I really, I can't wrap my head around it. I really don't know how it works. I just know they were hugely successful over there at Collider. And suddenly they look at that stuff and they say, okay, let's put all the, all the resources into this. We're going to have to let all these panelists go. Mm-hmm. As a panelist or a producer for that kind of content, does it create the environment where you are rooting against another member of the team where you're saying, hey, that initiative across the hall, that might be my walking papers in a few weeks if this thing takes off. And how do you keep that level of, like it's something like screen junkies, how do you keep that level of camaraderie when you realize that the guy working on a new pitch for a new thing, if that takes off, they might see you as expendable? I mean, I, I think it, I think it goes largely to the culture that you establish at a place, and uh, you know, I, I I'm biased in the sense that um, most of the people who were let go at Collider were were and are really good friends of mine, and I, I think that the way that it was handled, uh, the process of how they were let go was was uh, very unfair. And I think that they were spoken about uh, afterwards in a way that was very disrespectful by certain people that work for that company. So, um, you know, I'm not the most unbiased person when it comes to that situation. Uh, but I will say we were very and and still our art screen junkie still is. And, and now that I've gone, but it remains very team based. And so we've never had a, an environment that fosters that kind of competition. Um, the thought has always been that if there's a new concept that does well, that's great because it's a win for the team. Obviously, if you produce or come up with an idea that, you know, that's even better because you get to make more of it. But we never had an environment where we're, I'm wondering like, oh, Spencer comes up with an idea that's better than my idea. Then, um, you know, I'm going to be out because, you know, we, we can only do so much. We were very team oriented and team-based system. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, Screen Junkies is still around is that it, it really is about everyone working together. And if someone has a great idea, it doesn't matter who has that idea. Let's all rally around it and let's make the best version of that that we can. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was very saddened to see what happened at Collider because th- those were a lot of great, great people. Um, I think the only silver lining to that is it happened at a time where this is moving a little more toward people being able to establish this and do this on their own. And so, you know, I've been on Mark Riley's show and Roxy Stryer's show and John Roca's show, and they are all hustlers and they work their asses off every single day of every single week. Um, but I, I, I really do think that uh, the culture, particularly perhaps there, fostered more competition than I think is maybe – you know, you don't want to see that because I don't think it's healthy in my right. opinion. So then 
why did you take off like Kane and Kung Fu and do your own path? You're like you're like Bill Bixby, man, like walking the high, the freeway there with his thumb out doing yep. your own thing. Um, that was something you wanted to do for a long time. You were waiting for just like you're like, you know what? I feel I have the confidence. I'm going to do it. This is the right time. I've injected the the virus into the system, and everything's going to shut down. <laughs> let's no, let's be honest. Not at all. You, you no. COVID so that you could shut everything down and get a head start. I'm right no, there. I wouldn't. No, not at all. Uh, no, I, I, I through the periscope. <laughs> work. Oh, yes. never mind. That's a stupid joke. <laughs> um. No, I, I, well, as I mentioned, you know, when we, when, when Screen Junkies was, was bought by fandom initially, they just said, do what you do. And, and they provided us a lot, us a lot of funds to even expand our programming, which we had not been able to do in quite a while. And, but over time, you know, the company sort of was started, was developing their own strategy. They're building their brand. It's a global brand. And over time, it sort of became clear that, you know, there was a lot of stuff we did that I still enjoyed, but there was some stuff that I wanted to do that's a little more niche. We talk about the fact that when you're on your own, it's a little easier to be niche. There was, a, there was some things that I wanted to do that were a little more niche that, that weren't quite as broad that were going into specific filmmakers and doing more analysis and film essays and stuff that, you know, people enjoy. But when you're talking about, uh, the overall picture, it, it wasn't exactly working toward the big picture ideas. I think that 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 the company was looking at, and so um, you know, it was it, like I said, it, it was a long process of talking and figuring out is the timing right, and figuring out what are my options, what can I work on, what can I not work on, um, and, and and ultimately this is where we ended up. So it really, really was a, a matter of of you know I'm kind of going in this direction, and and I sense that the company's kind of going in this direction, and it's just it's just time, and and I felt like I had to make the move that I felt was right for me, was right for where I am right now, both personally and 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 my career, the career that I'm trying to build, and so, um, you know, this was the time I chose. I chose the time before I knew that you know obviously that this was all going to happen as far as covid goes and and it certainly made leaving more complicated and more difficult um because i didn't get to say goodbye really to anybody uh you know we we all just sort of found out one day that we're not going to be going into the office anymore so it it was all done by phone and 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 on video chat so i i I do miss that i i didn't really get the chance to properly spend the last time that i had with those with that team um but uh yeah it it was really just it was it the time was 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 up it it was time to make the move if i was going to make the move or if i wasn't to commit myself in fairness to them to commit myself fully to the strategy that they wanted to go toward because to split my time or split my allegiance um you know i understand like you don't you don't want that it's not fair it's not fair to the people i work with and it's not fair to myself what if we throw you a party when this is all over like a, a farewell party, like a going away party, or hey, you've got a new channel. I'll throw the uh, URL back on there. Uh, a launch party, right? You, you there got you this go. New movies channel where you talk about all this stuff. That uh, I mean, talk to me about you because Dan, like we've been, we've like known each other for ten years, and I really don't know a whole lot about you, man. Like uh, the the film criticism stuff that you're doing that you you've done for Screen Junkies, but now you're gonna throw like full bore into on your channel like uh i didn't know you were such a big trek head like you're a total <laughs> trekkie and yeah. I, I i watched all of the card and that's kind of like good for me because heidi's in the in into star trek and i'm kind of like the guy who's like in you know i'm into star trek i think it's cool 
Uh, Farscape's my thing, as you can tell by the name of this podcast. But uh, I watch Picard because I'm like, oh, cool. It's loud and it's bombastic and it's, you know, cinematic in a way that, like, I think JJ had a, a hand in introducing into the Star Trek universe. Um, and then now it's got some curse words in it, which I think, uh, like, Discovery is get. <laughs> It's just getting the stage ready for that Tarantino trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, it's like they're priming it. Like that's my kind of kind of trek, and I enjoyed it. But obviously, I didn't know the idiosyncrasies of the series or how this and that. It it was as annoying, I think, for her as when we watched the Watchmen TV series, and she's like, "What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean?" What every if she finally just paused it and says, "Hey, listen, I can't just explain Star Trek to you," like as we're going along on Picard because you're annoying the shit out of me. Like, <laughs> what? You're just going to have to watch it. Um, what did you think? And then really to get to know you, Dan, like, was this what you wanted to do Is when you were like a little kid with film criticism and like get to know movies and like, who are your heroes? Was it the Roger, was it the, the, the Ebert and Siskel and stuff? What was going on there? Um, yeah, well, I mean, for, for as far as Trek goes, that's actually what you describe. I think I found that the, that it's fairly common, which is that for a lot of people, the less they're into, quote unquote, classic Trek, which would be pre-Trek 09, pre-JJ, yeah. the more they're into the new stuff. Um, which, which, which I get, but I, you know, I think it also underscores a lot of the problems that, that fans of, of Star Trek have had with the new stuff is that it, it feels so different. So very different from what's come before in many ways. Welcome that... to being a Star Wars fan, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but but you see that divide. That's not uncommon. So I'm not surprised to hear that. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as film criticism goes, I always knew I wanted to do something with movies. And for me growing up, Siskel and Ebert was largely my entryway into movies that I had not heard of because this is in the early to mid nineties when I'm kind of coming into my own, as far as loving movies on a, on, on a level more than just as entertainment. Um, the independent movement of the mid nineties, your Pulp Fictions and your Fargo's and stuff. It didn't really, from where I grew up in Arkansas, get to that part of the country really mm-hmm. at all. I mean, we, they, they, it, it's much better now. Now there are two or three theaters and where I grew up in Little Rock that have, uh, you know, screens that will run films like that. But at that time, that was not the case. So a national show like, like Siskel and Ebert um, would introduce me to these movies that I'd never heard of. And then when they came out on video, I'd seek them out and, and see what the, what all the fuss was about. Uh, Roger Ebert in particular was a very big um, hero of mine because I just love the way he wrote about film and talked about film. And I had the big compendium books of his reviews and he helped me kind of learn the film language and the language of criticism. Um, and you know, the Siskel and Ebert sort of get a lot of flack for the up down polarization of film criticism. And, you know, I think some of that's justified, but I also think that neither of them, but particularly Ebert gets enough credit for their wonderfully written prose reviews Mm -hmm. that were not, what was on television. That's what would run in books and on in the newspaper. Uh, so initially I thought maybe that I would be making movies, directing, et cetera. And, and I, and I tried my hand at that writing stuff and, and I enjoyed it. But the more I got into movies, the more I realized that I enjoyed analyzing them. I enjoyed sharing the ones that I liked. I enjoyed finding new ones. And uh, so the, the, the critical eye and the critical perspective just appealed to me more and more. And I had a chance at Screen Junkies to sort of start doing that, and 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 it led me down the road to where I am today. 
Have you, uh, did you ever get a chance to meet Roger Ebert? No, it's one of my great, um, you know, he, he of course had a, a major health event um, right. several years before he passed away, but it was still always one of my life's uh, ambitions to attend uh, his, his, uh, he would do Ebert Fest, his, he'd yep. run a film festival every year and he would do like film festivals at sea and he would do these lectures in Colorado uh, where he would just do like a frame by frame of a film over like three days. And it was always my, one of my dreams to get the chance to at least meet him or, or have some uh, contact with him communication uh, just to express my gratitude. And and unfortunately he passed away before uh, that could happen. So that, that will, that will always be something I regret because he, he really, really was uh, a a great influence on how I view film uh, as he was for a lot of people. And I think I agree with you that, you know, uh, a lot of people do kind of remember Roger Ebert as like the loud early Roger Ebert when you know him and like amongst the, where he's still kind of making films, but he's making like return of the Valley of the dolls kind of stuff. And they think, they think of him as like, uh a little bit loud mm-hmm. but his writing was ultimately like what put him on the map it, it wasn't the guys in front of the television reviewing things thumbs up and down it was for he both he and siskel it was the writing at a south by southwest i believe it was 2000 it was the year that he died i remember meeting him he was giving my friend robert pickering who hasn't been on the show since i think 2009 he had a film play itself by that year 2010 2011 and I was standing with him when Ebert was in the lobby after the, the premiere, and, and Ebert couldn't talk. You yeah. know, his 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 mouth was his jaw was gone, yeah. but he could sign, and he was signing how much he enjoyed the film. And I, I was just like, "This is this is my chance that I'm going to see this guy." And you know, he's talking to my friend Robbie, and this is, and I'm in the. It's like the being in the presence of somebody like that I've been in the presence of before because of Geekscape things like a Stan Lee or. A um, uh, you know, the, uh, somebody who has some cultural influence that uh, you, you just have to look back and be like, I'm glad I was next to him for even moments. You know, yeah. George Romero being another one, I think. Um, Holby, you might be that person for other people though, too, Dan. And like this new channel that you're doing might influence some people. We got this guy Holby run faster on YouTube, and he's saying, "I'm excited to see Dan's next project." <laughs> Still the people's champion on movie fights. You walked away a champ. I think you might owe them another bout because can you do that? Can you take the ball and go home? Can you just like game's over? I win. Bye. I don't want to. I, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, I still have a movie fights championship to defend and I stand ready to defend it at any time. I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be a, a paper champion that just uh, walks away and claims to be the champion forever. I would love to be a fighting champion, and I look forward to the day when uh, they invite me back to uh, to defend that belt because I am still the current movie fights champion. Any chance to put that uh, you know the belt? Are you going to put it behind you and maybe the studio? Maybe talk a little trash in that way. Like I'm looking at your studio; it looks a little sparse, but maybe like that's the simplicity is like the the, the key there. Well, I'm in between shoots. This is the remnants of a shoot that I did earlier today. And then I like to switch things around for every shoot because I want it to, you know, the set to look as, fr- as fresh as it can. So this is this is the remnants of a review that I was shooting earlier. So it's usually a little more stacked. Um, but that they kept the belt. The belt belongs the belt, the physical belt belongs to to screen junkies and fandom. So I had to leave the belt uh, there. But I, uh, as far well- as I'm concerned, the championship stays with me. I try and change the studio every now and then as well. But Heidi says, 
don't touch a damn thing. You're lucky to be dating me, which is basically how that works. So Geekscape is if you're bored with the studio, if it's getting a little stagnant for you, just I, I, I'm not in control here. Let's just be clear. Like this is the way it works. Uh, Wizard of Video Games on Twitch says, what about Joe Bob Briggs and his amazing return? Joe Bob Briggs and like the MST3K guys, like that was a little more my speed. But, you know, I'm missing a couple uh, brain cells. Uh, and those are kind of my influences where I was like, oh, yeah. I think I could grow up and be like Joe Bob Briggs. I can't. Yeah. You know? Or the film reviewer from Gremlins too. I think that's kind of my speed. You know. You mean Leonard Malton? Leonard Malton. I mean, no, I, I think I'm thinking of Leonard Malton, who I do like, but uh, I'm actually thinking of Christopher Lee's character. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yes. Who's like the mad scientist? Yes. <laughs> if he was a film reviewer. <laughs> um, what about Joe Bob Briggs and these other like? kind of reviewers were you into that like the personality based ones yeah like i said i that was uh particularly guys like joe bob briggs that were on cable again that was a conduit for a lot of people who would be cut off from this kind of stuff you know not only in the pre before independent cinema sort of encroached even further into the country but pre-internet uh, pre-internet as something that everyone has in their home and that they're constantly connected to um you know the idea of these creature features and joe bob uh, uh, briggs being like the 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 host, uh, you know, that, that, that's another one. Uh, Le- you know, I, Leonard Malton is, is the one critic that I've had uh, the chance to, to, to talk with on several occasions. He's been on my show a couple times when I was at, at screen junkies. And, um, you know, he was one of those things that, you know, for, for years when I would watch any star Wars movie, the first face I would see when I pressed play was Leonard Malton's because every right. tape had an interview with him and George Lucas on it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it's, um, the idea that 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 you know I could be that version of that to somebody else is sort of beyond my comprehension. Like, uh, uh, I, and 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 the biggest compliments I get is is if somebody says that to me. But uh, it's it's so knowing how meaningful that was for me for those folks like Leonard Malton and Roger Ebert and these folks that that I associate movie with, uh, discovering movies with. Um, it's, 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 I, I'm sort of like, I, I kind of feel like Rod Burgundy when somebody says that it's just like, I don't believe you, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, right. it, uh, it's so flattering. It's, it's really the most flattering thing that, that, that you could say. Um, it, it is really, right. really kind of overwhelming sometimes. Well, I that. think you would have liked, man, we, we should have been best friends like growing up because you would have <laughs> loved growing up in Austin. Cause we had that South by Southwest and like, I just remember being there from the early '90s. Like they still show movies at the uh, what was it? The the Dolby Theater, which is like it's a dorm. It's one of the UT dorms, and it had a really dingy movie theater and like a, a food court. And uh, and I just have so many memories of growing up in that culture. Where around the time that you were talking about that mid '90s indie film thing, it was like that stuff was huge for me. And yeah. Spike, Mike, Slaggers, and Dykes. Like I had, like we had Richard Linklater right there as a hometown hero, and then suddenly you have Robert Rodriguez coming out as a hometown hero, and all that stuff. Like that culture seems like the one where like young, like Dan Merle would have gone nuts. Oh, and it was definitely. Yeah, no, come on, no, I doubt that. No, no, it is, you know, and my mine was very different. It was watching Siskel and Ebert and hearing them talk about this thing, like, like you know, Fargo is the first great American film, and blah blah blah. So that would be like, oh, I got to go see Fargo, or or even people yeah. that were a little older than me, sort of guiding me through this. Like I remember working at my mom's office one summer, and the the kind of the the cool 
temp who was working there, you know, who was like the young, the young, uh, uh, the young woman in the office, you know, probably in her early twenties or mid twenties was like, you got to see clerks and like, you know, it slipped me a copy of clerks for me to watch. Like it was very much more of an organic thing, which is, uh, it's a different experience, but you know, it also has its own kind of romance to it, I guess its own mystique. And it's, it's largely one that's gone because people are so connected now and movies are so accessible, uh, which by the way, I think is great. That, that people have yeah. much wider access to movies through streaming services and theaters. But, uh, you know, there is this sort of romance thing to to finding these films that you didn't know existed and having to go hike and, and have people that were more connected than you uh, find them for you. I, I guess there's a form of that that still exists, but, uh, you know, it's... I don't it's know. Having that person at the video store who's like the tastemaker or a record store to be like, hey, man... Mm-hmm. Have you seen this or have you heard this? Like, what were those films early on? You said Fargo, you said Clerks. Like, mm-hmm. what were those movies like that young Dan was like, oh, these operate on a different level than Jurassic Park? And obviously Jurassic Park is fucking Jurassic Park. It's amazing. But yeah. um, it's a it's a mainstream Hollywood blockbuster. And if you suddenly saw something that was like a little bit different mm-hmm. uh, or a little bit more like a a particular taste, like what were some of those movies for you? Um, I mean, Pulp Fiction was a big one for me. I still remember my, you know, because Pulp Fiction was was one of the ones that broke through into the mainstream. So I remember my mom seeing it. And, you know, I was way, I was like 11 when it came out. So I was way too young to see it at that time. But I remember my mom talking about it. She's like, I saw that. I'm making her sound a little more. Uh, So she's like, I saw, I saw this movie. I saw, I watched Pulp Fiction. It's so weird. It's like these people are talking in the beginning, and then you don't see them again till the end, and it's all out of order. And 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 like in my mind, it's just like, oh, that sounds interesting. And so finally getting to see it, and it does challenge, uh, you know, my brain's conventional um, concept of storytelling and 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 all that. Of chronology so that was definitely a bit of a mind a mind scrambler for me seeing pulp fiction uh for the first time and then even in college going into college movies like memento and requiem for a dream um really keyed me into to the very specific frequency that some filmmakers can can operate on and then you know 1999 was a huge year for movies because that's when you saw the mainstream kind of take up this the risk taking of independent films so movies like fight club and sixth sense and south park and matrix and being john malkovich like all hitting that year blair witch project i mean that was a if you're gonna talk about maybe the most influential year for me as a young film goer 99 i'm 16 years old i'm right in that sweet spot as far as like having my building my taste and and to have that kind of renaissance of a year right in the middle of it was was hugely influential for me it feels like these things happen in 30-year cycles because i'm when i hear you talk about 1999 i'm thinking about 1969 when you did have the movies like bonnie and clyde going up against movies like cleopatra Mm -hmm. and you have like an easy writer and we're just on the beginning of this explosion going into the seventies where you have films like five easy pieces or Harold and Maud and uh, these filmmakers that start leading themselves to become the big genre filmmakers. You can argue that, that, that the memento Christopher Nolan who becomes the dark Knight Christopher Nolan can be the, uh, you know, the USC George Lucas who becomes the star Wars George Lucas within a decade, you know, these mm-hmm. things are happening as filmmakers. 
Um, and then if you trace it back to the, the years that we're talking about, which were super influential to me, those years in the early 90s where you start to see clerks and slacker and, and that stuff. I think I, I'm, I'm about four or five years older than you are. You, those were big. Those are the big movies for me. And you trace them back, you start to think about, you know, post-World War II. And then as you start to get into American cinema coming out of the 50s and 60s, you start to see stuff like all, all, all I guess that, that whole French new wave movement that was super cool in like the 50s and 60s. Finally, we start having like single screen art houses that used to be just the movie theaters. Yeah, They become those art houses and you start to be able to see a Kurosawa movie or you start to see, start seeing like a Truffaut Godard movie and people are like, holy shit, what is this crazy shit? Yeah. So something like, like, do you ever see that movie Weekend? I think it's a Godard movie, a Truffaut movie, and it's fucking crazy. They kill a pig on camera. <laughs> oh. It's completely jump cutting and you're like, I don't know what the fuck is happening. It's making you sick. <laughs> yeah. But you start seeing that stuff and you're like, whoa, now I can see why there's jump cuts in Easy Rider just within ten years, and well, I think and we had the same thing happening in the in the in the 90s where things are shifting so quickly as a reaction to 80s blockbuster, mm-hmm. the Goonies, Star Wars, like Indiana Jones, these big ass blockbusters that turned into James Cameron, which is awesome because James Cameron's fucking James Cameron. T2 is the shit, but uh, there's a reaction to that, and I think that the reaction to that to James Cameron was you start to get the Kevin Smiths and you start to get the, the, all these different filmmakers that with the, with MTV coming into the game, start giving themselves people who are used to just being like, Hey, I found a fucking Bolex. I'm going to run around with the beastie boys and make shit. Yeah. And they're learning to be these filmmakers who are soon going to start making some big stuff leading to 1999. And I think, you know, when you say it's cyclical, I think that we are, we, I think we're at the nearing the end or beginning, however you want to look at it, of another cycle in the sense that like the, the explosion in the 90s, the explosion in the 60s, a lot of it was led by people who felt like big studio films, that Hollywood films did not speak for them or to them anymore. They had gotten mm-hmm. too big. They would gotten too bloated. And they wanted to start an independent movement uh, to where you could really express uh, yourself. And I think we're I think we're at that moment right now. Well, it's technologically uh, driven too because yeah. TV kicked the shit out of film. Yeah, and when TV kicked the shit out of film, you started seeing things like Fox in the '60s being run by a skeleton crew by like a 24 year old, right? Like that that studio was run by a dude who was like 24 years old, like like Zucker Jr. or whatever his name was. Like he put Cleopatra like Cleopatra almost destroyed Fox, and as we know, like. You know, Sony is sitting on the lot that used to be MGM. Now MGM is a tower in Century City. Like the studios aren't sustainable. So I ask you, when you look at these things, like I won't let film students come to me with their films and use the excuse that they didn't know what to shoot on because like John Cassavetes would have murdered for this camera. He had to fucking duct tape a Bolex together and run around shooting stuff. Uh, He would have murdered for this. This is this is a better camera on this iPhone that has been around for the first hundred years of filmmaking. And, and I, I won't let you, like, come on, stop using excuses. Is that the revolution you're talking about? Is it a digital one? I think that's the current revolution. It's the fact that there are now tools available to filmmakers at a price point that is unheard of that can allow them to compete with any other, maybe not a Marvel movie, but you know, any other movie that's not a big special effects spectacular that comes out there. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bo Burnham can make eighth grade look like a movie, like a it like a like it, it, what's that? I thought it was the best movie that year. And it, and it was a great movie. Yeah, it's this idea of the, the, for lack of a better word, the democratization of the the ability to make films is that the, the, the change in this movement, I think, is that filmmaking tools are now available at a price point and to such availability that anybody with a vision, anybody with a good story and the will and the drive to do it can make a film that doesn't look amateurish, that doesn't look cheap, that looks like it it belongs just as as much as any other movie whereas that wasn't necessarily the case even 20 years ago um i think that that is going to be has already proven to be a huge advantage to this upcoming generation of filmmakers and i think it's going to continue to be an advantage because that's another barrier gone between a great storyteller potentially and a great story being told i think that's very exciting that you that 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 possibility now exists is will Periscope be part of that in any way? Like <laughs> I, this, I, this Periscope thing, please, because I I just spent my entire stimulus fund on Periscope stock. Please. Uh, well, I, I think you're. I th- I'm going to say you're in good shape. I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm going to say that the next big thing is Periscope movies. <laughs> well, what do you think about this little theory that I just kickstarted when I saw um, this uh, comment in the in the check out this comment that we got? It, it said. The 90s for me was all about Hong Kong. And what do you mm-hmm. think about the globalization that we're going through? Uh, where it's something like, you know, we have our World War Z and we have our 28 Days Later. But obviously, like, uh, what was that? What was that? That um, The one where they're on the train, the South Korean train movie. To Busan. Train to Busan. That fucking movie rules. And yes. now, we're, now it seems like different countries are all speaking the same filmic language but to go back to this point off of twitch the 90s for me was all about hong kong and obviously john woo was like a big influence in the 90s and obviously a big influence in the 80s going into uh to the tarantino movies and, and things like that but mm-hmm. Choi hawk and john woo and all those, those those guys uh what do you think about that kickstarting that 30-year cycle because i do go back to the 50s and 60s and movies like the Godzilla and the Kurosawa movies landing on the, in, in the States for the first time there in the sixties and influencing people in a big way. How does this work? I think that's the other exciting thing is that you don't have to work as hard or you don't have to luck into finding filmmakers uh, like you did, you know, before you, you find, you see a filmmaker like John Woo had such a massive influence on, on everyone else. So imagine John Woo with 10 times the reach. And mm-hmm. that's the world that we're living in today where, I mean, change to Pusan, great movie. Um, how many fewer people would have seen that movie 20 years ago if it wasn't on Netflix? It would be, it would be a maybe a cult film, maybe. Um, it's a cult film now, right? It's got, but but the audience for that film, and and who knows who that's going to inspire. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the other interesting thing is not only the availability of filmmaking tools, but the availability of films to future filmmakers. Um, I think it's re- we're really going to see it start paying off dividends even more than uh, it has already. I mean, the last year was one of the most exciting f- mo- years for me as far as movies go in a really long time. Just the breath of fresh air and the 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 new the new visions that I saw from a lot of these filmmakers was super exciting and it, and it really makes me feel like we are on the cusp of, you know, special films come out every year. Great films come out every year, but it makes me feel like we're on the cusp of a real revolution 
where people have greater access to filmmaking tools, greater access to distribution. And, you know, we're now going to start seeing the byproducts of a generation that's had more access to film than any other generation ever before. It's, I think it's a very exciting time uh, to be a, a, a film fan. Well, we're stuck in a pandemic, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Maybe and not this also, exact moment. Yes. There's also <laughs> this thing that is kind of the equivalent of, I think, the television of the 50s is this uh, idea that we have to compete about uh, against video games and interactive entertainment at this point. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, I worry, especially now, I was talking to you before the show about how uh, I read this morning that Charles World Tour made more for Universal, made as much in, in three weeks for Universal mm-hmm. as the entire first Trolls movie made in five months because of the cost of theatrical distribution and how much these theaters take from the, the studios. And listen, yeah. I'm not going to cry for Comcast or any of that, but uh, at what point do the studios look up at these tools that we're talking about that you and I use, like digital distribution, and they say, you know what, this isn't just for indie filmmakers anymore. Uh, we can use this to distribute our next movie, and plus, it doesn't help that the TVs are now as giant, and they look like people have theaters in their homes at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you're a dad and you want to take your family to Trolls uh, World Tour, uh, the economics are simple: you can spend sixty dollars to take the full family to the AMC mm-hmm. and deal with whatever you run into, or you can do nineteen ninety nine and put it on your big TV, and you guys rent it for the weekend. You can watch it whenever you want, start it whenever you want, end it whenever you want, pause it walk away, and you get the same experience for a third of it. Meanwhile, Universal's happy because they're now taking 80% back. Mm-hmm. For the, they don't have to pay for prints. They don't have to pay for distribution. They, you know, they just have to put some P&A together. That stuff's going to become digital sooner or later. Um, and they end up with 80% of the box office rather than the the, the, the 50 or less that they after, after sharing it with the distribution channels in the theater. Like, at what point are theaters just going to kind of become niche experiences? Well, I, I, I do think the studios are definitely going to start doing this more. I think there's going to be filmmakers that'll 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 quit filmmaking before they allow their movies to go to VOD, like Christopher Nolan. I don't think a Christopher Nolan movie will ever be made that doesn't play in a theater. Well, he- I mean, well, you think about some of these technology plays, right? Like we we saw Ang Lee do it this year with Gemini Man, right? Like mm-hmm. he's he was doing what was it like a 150 frames a second, 120 frames a second on this it thing? It was an exhausting. Well, it was an exhausting experience. I'll tell you. Well, that. yeah, but 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 it, but it worked for. We were talking about him earlier. It worked for James Cameron because if you wanted to play Avatar and you wanted to play it the best way, you had to buy James Cameron's 3D projector, and. Yeah. And, and, and so James Cameron, every time you watch a 3D movie, James Cameron's making some money off those Marvel films because those theaters that are using his projector that they bought for Avatar are paying him a little bit of chunk of change every time you sit down to watch the Avengers movies. And he didn't even have to lift his finger to make those things. He just has to let it play. And we have a technolo- technology play that also didn't work with the Hobbit movies when those things were shot. And yep. uh, was it 48 frames a second or something big, like a 60 frames a second? 60 is that too far, yeah. Um, these technology plays are going to keep happening as more and more people turn to video games and turn to online content and online mm-hmm. distribution. They've got to find ways to put buzzers back under the seats and put people back in the movie theaters. What do you think the next one is? Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is I think when we talk about the cycle is is it's different technology, but 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 that is also what gave rise to the great independent uh, surge of the late 60s and early 70s was TV was kicking movies butt 
And so they said, we're doing smell-o-vision. We're doing 3D. We're doing cinema seats. I can't wait for the buzzers under the seats. <laughs> exactly. People, they were, I can do without, but maybe. Yeah. But they were trying to get people in for the spectacle. And ultimately, what got people back into theaters was filmmakers like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, who uh, were entrusted by these studio heads to make their films that became the new blockbusters and got people back into the theaters. So I don't, ne- I don't necessarily know if there's a technological fix. To me, it's another cycle of let's trick people into watching movies again. I think if you make great movies again, then people will go and, and they'll see them. Maybe not as many as before because you know, you're know you right. The theatrical market is going to get a little more niche as the competition increases. But I think there's always going to be people that are going to want to go see a great movie. Uh, I think there's still going to be a large chunk that want to go see it in the theater. And I love people like um, distributors like Neon and A24 who now – at this point in time, you know, all of the other distributors are looking for a different way to make money. Folks like Neon and A24 are rallying around their filmmakers and saying like, no, well, we trust you. We're going to we're going to put it. We're going to put a big marketing push on this or a big advertising push on this. And we're going to play your movie in theaters and they're succeeding, maybe not on the scale of a Marvel movie, but they're still succeeding. I think you're going to see a lot a, a bigger rise for a lot of these distributors uh, that commit to that because filmmakers are going to want to work for them. Uh, they're going to they're going to make money in theaters, and I, I think that I, I really, really do believe. You know, is the theatrical business as a whole going to continue to draw the money that it does now? I probably not, but I think that you're also going to see a sort of counterbalance thing of some distributors and exhibitors committing fully even more to the theatrical. Uh, experience and i think that there's going to be a big slice of the public that appreciates that and is going to respond to that oh i do not like that view that i just cut to but i did want to say that i think you're right and i worry that the overhead of these theaters uh will make them sparser and less of an investment for companies to start them up uh and it's you know uh we had the 70s and the 70s turned them into a mall culture, turned them into a, uh, a multi-screen experience. And now we had these uh, these big theaters. And it's kind of sad going downtown and seeing these old single screen theaters turned into swap meets and things like that. It is a real, I have a big romantic part of me for the old Hollywood that yeah. built those places. Um, and we'll see where it goes from there. I think that, you know, it's, it's nice to see something like a barcade spring up and to think about how people still want to act communally even when they're doing something as individualistic as playing a video game that they could play at home. There's something to be said about that communal experience of going to a barcade and maybe films or the advent of something like uh, the integration of virtual reality into a film experience. And I think it, I mean, it's, I think it's within the next 10 years that we have something that augments our film experience. So you and I can easily go and see the same movie. I'm sitting next to you, but the character, but the character of Joe in my film is played by Ben Affleck and you're watching Matt Damon simply because they reskinned it based on the preferences I've had in my movie going past and that everything, you know, he's drinking a Pepsi. Well, let's be clear. They would both be drinking diet Cokes because that's what you and I drink, but, that's true. <laughs> uh, but you can see how they, the product play from product placement on down, everything is specified based on the information given to you by the phone mm-hmm. that you use to buy your ticket. And now everything on the screen is a little bit different than the person sitting next to you. Yeah. Maybe even the story. I think mm-hmm. within 10 years of that experience. 
Maybe so, but I think it's similar to what we how we started this, this whole thing with the idea of these companies trying to uh, um, manufacture viral videos. Um, I think that studios over the decades have tried time and time again to improve on the theater experience. What's mm-hmm. the next best way to watch a movie? What's the way that audiences are going to watch a movie now uh, in the future? And by and large, all of them have been fads. Even, I mean, the, the, the fact that the projection, the 3D projector, that's great for James Cameron. But if you look at how many people are choosing to see movies in 3D, it went from a big a, a majority uh, initially to now most film goers, according to you know research and everything, most film goers are choosing to watch a movie in 2D. In a theater, uh, you know, projected and you know, projected digitally, but projected the same way that they were and have been for decades. I think that there's this thing, this 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 need by the uh, on studios' parts to 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 say like, what's the better way to watch a movie? What's the better way to watch a movie? I think most people like the way they watch movies. I think if you're in a movie theater, then that's the experience that you enjoy. It's, it's, there's a reason that it's, it's hung around this long. So, you know, I, I think that innovation is nice. And I think that a lot of times these, these, these new tricks and whatever are fun and, and cool, but, and, you know, maybe this is the romantic in me. Maybe this is me just being old and out of touch. I honestly think that audiences at the end of the day are always going to go back to the traditional film watching experience, because I think that alone is transportational. Um, it has its own sense of magic and whimsy. Um, and I don't think you need to add to it. I, I, I really don't. And I think the reason that people don't don't go with these technologies is because they get sick of them. And they're like, I just want to watch a movie. No, I, I think you and I are cut from the same cloth, brother. Um, is that the kind of uh, analysis you're going to be doing on your channel? Like, talk about you a little bit. Talk about your channel a little bit, and I'll let you go. Uh, yeah, that's, no. That's I, so cool there. <laughs> you want <laughs> you speak about your channel. You must not leave until you plug your no, channel. Lady. Oh, please. I, mean, I, I love the idea. I listen. No offense to screen junkies, but I really don't like the trivia stuff. I think that it's like, uh, I think it's like a, a trick. I think it's like, let's see how high you can jump. And it's like, mm-hmm. come on. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that stuff. And Lon brought me in to do a trivia game, and I brought Bibiani with me, which is how Bibiani ended up with you guys. Mm-hmm. It was the first time, and I said, okay, I got a guy. You never heard of him. Uh, we started Bibiani here at Geekscape back in like 2008 or nine. He was working at Staples and, and I love Bibiani to death. Super proud that he's like turned this whole thing into a, a career where he's reviewing movies mm-hmm. uh, because he's fucking awesome at it. But I remember Lon asking me if I wanted to be on uh, some trivia show. And I said, uh, I get really nervous doing those things and I don't like it. It's like somebody being like, jump man. And I'm like, I don't want to jump. <laughs> so I invited Bibiani on knowing that he is, a juggernaut. Yes, he is. <laughs> I have faced him in the trivia showdown many, many times, and he always gives me a run for my money. And so Bibiani and I were up. Who I forget who we were up again, but uh, but Lon said we broke a record, mm-hmm. and we just did it, and it was awesome. <laughs> it was so much. It was we were it was against uh, Sasha. Sasha, we were up against Sasha. I love Sasha, yeah. and uh, and 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 Lon was like, and I was like, you got to hold on to this guy. I don't know if I want to keep doing this. So tell me about your channel. I, it's not the trivia thing, like because the trivia thing wasn't working. Like, it's this kind of talk, right? The analysis, the thought, the, this kind of thing. Is that what you're going into? I mean, that's largely it. Is um, you know, I mean, I, I think the game we brought you on was movie games, which was something we did 
when mm-hmm. we were doing uh, Screen Junkies Plus um, with Jeremy Johns, and um, and you know, I and I do play, you know, I play in a in a competitive movie trivia league um, called the Schmodown. Uh, but but the one thing that I will always say and that I don't think is fair is like uh, stuff like trivia is like that's an indicator of how good you are at trivia. That's not an indicator of how much you know about movies necessarily, or how passionate you are, or how valid your insights are. I mean, I think it's a completely separate thing. Um, it stresses me out so bad. <laughs> right. It, it's like I know some of the most brilliant uh, minds. Like I, I mean, I used to review movies with Roth Cornett all the time. I love Roth. Um, one of the most analytical, insightful people out there about movies had no interest in playing in the trivia showdown because she rightfully knew that if she went out there and didn't perform well, that there would be a slice of the audience that assumed that she didn't know anything about movies. And that's so not true and so unfair. So I, I think that everything has a place. I would be the guy who comes out and just hits people with the belt or like with a two by <laughs> keep in mind, Dan, my brother was a WWE wrestler. Like we come on, it's in the genes. Yeah. Like we can come out and like hit you with a sledgehammer or something. I don't know, yeah. but actually like trivia. Oh man. I'd, I'd be, uh, count me out on that one. It was this, your show is going to be a lot of this analysis stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, really the reason that I, that I decided to start my own channel was because, um, I, I really enjoy talking about movies. It's something that, you know, as you, I mean, I've done a lot of promoting and stuff. Uh, I've done, you know, a lot of podcasts, a lot of shows, and it's something that I always enjoy doing because if you get me going on movies, I'll just, I'll just talk and talk and talk and talk. It just spills out of me. And the, the concept that I could maybe do that for a living is, is uh, still kind of an alien concept to me, but you know, I just love, I love I love breaking down movies that I love, which is going to be a big part of the channel. I love the box office. Obviously, is a big thing. Like I I, I don't look at it as I, I don't like how a lot of the coverage of the box office is about like who won and who lost. I, I much I much more prefer it to be about like why this movie did it, why it did, and why it didn't do as well, or why maybe people are saying it didn't do well, but it actually didn't do that bad. There's a lot of misperceptions. I just think it's an interesting study and a breakdown of behavior and and marketing and and everything like that it's it's i love going deep into this kind of stuff and you know it's much easier you know it it is it is a little more niche um and and, you know i'll talk about the mcu because i love the mcu and i'll talk about star wars because i sometimes love star wars (laughs) and um uh, but but of course i'll talk about that stuff but the opportunity to kind of say when, when I'm on my own and I'm doing my own thing, it gives me permission to, to, to say like, hey, I'm just going to go off into my own world here. I'm going to go down this weird rabbit hole. And if it doesn't work and nobody watches it, uh, if it turns out terrible, then the only person whose time and resources have been wasted is mine and the people that may have decided to watch it. it it's Nobody else is on the line, is on the hook for it. I'm not taking time away from working on another project that I should have been working on or could have been working on. That's energizing to me because it gives me the freedom to sort of go whichever direction I feel like I want to go. So well, it's I'm very energized and excited by it. Well, Dan, thank you for allowing me to waste your time going down this little rabbit hole. It, I mean, you just basically described my motivation with Geekscape. I'm like, yeah, you know what? It's just me and uh, thankfully, Derek and Matt helped me with the thing, and George helps me with the thing. But uh, really, the, the the ship goes where you want to steer it. Yeah. And if it's a bad idea, you can always move direction. And it's not like the that, that MCN stuff that we were talking about earlier. It's you, and it's your pure voice. So 
I'm excited to, to see what you've got up there. Uh, Geekscapus, he's already got um, one of the chartings up on the channel. If you guys check it out, I'll throw the URL back up here. It's Dan Merle Movies on YouTube. And if you guys search for it, you'll find it. You'll find it. He's already got thousands and thousands of, of subscribers. But yeah, he's got a video, Break It Down Picard. He's got a, video, a, a edition of charting. And then if you want to go back to the source, he's got a video just saying, hey, this is why I made a channel and left uh, Screen Junkies. So there's already stuff up on the channel that's worth uh, checking out, Dan. And I hope the Geekscapists jump on it because I, I would like to think the Geekscapists are a little bit more cerebral. I, it sounds like we'd be kindred <laughs> spirits. And if anyone decides to make the jump over, uh, I certainly hope uh, they enjoy it because uh, the community that we are building and have built so far has just been so incredible and, and ready to debate and talk about things respectfully which is wonderful uh, to, sh- to, to share opinions. For, I know for now, I understand, <laughs> but uh, I'm in the honeymoon phase. Uh, I'm going to enjoy the honeymoon phase. And then, um, you know, I'm sure that, that, that some people will come in later, but, but, but right now it's just been so just energizing and kind of reinvigorating and encouraging um, what's happened over there. So, you know, anyone who my other thing about it is if we disagree, I'm not going to yell at you. I'd certainly go on Dan rants, but I don't yell at people for their opinions. I just yell at movies for being terrible. Um, uh, It's, you know, it's all about like, I understand you're not always going to agree with me. I'm not always going to agree with you. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss that. Let's break that down. Why is that? What did you respond to that? I didn't that that's fun. That kind of discourse is fun and, and energizing for me as well. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. And real quick off of Twitch, I think we got a, a clarification. Uh, the Geekscapists are a little more serial than cerebral. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very serial as well. So. There we go. Okay. Well, we've stocked up here for the pandemic. Uh, Dan, dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having you. And again, guys, go check out Dan's channel, Dan Merle's movies. Not possessive. Dan Merle movies. On <laughs> Just search, search for the man. You're going to find him, and you're going to find some really good, smart stuff. You heard him here on Geekscape talking smart. You're going to subscribe to him on YouTube. He's going to be talking smart again. And me, you know what you got here. We've been doing Geekscape long enough. You know it's going to be like, oh, Jonathan again. Well, maybe he'll say something funny or hurt himself, but we'll see. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, anytime. All right? You want to talk movies? Anytime. Hopefully we're out of this pandemic soon and can sit in a movie seat, theater seat again. I hope so too. Yeah, man, this, this is, this is a, a great time and I'll come back anytime you want me. All right. Thanks dude. Thank you so much. Uh, Geekscape is definitely go subscribe to Dan's uh, YouTube page. I found it to be uh, a lot of fun watching this stuff. I'm like, Hey, this is great. This isn't, uh, this isn't loud and brash. This is just a dude thinking about movies because he loves them. And that's what we do. We love movies and comics and video games and pop culture. And that's why we do Geekscape uh, all the time now. I'm doing multiple a week. Uh, love you guys. Subscribe on the, the podcast if you want some more of the audio stuff. I'm recording stuff for the audio that doesn't end up on the stream. And, of course, if you like the stream, share it with your friends. We're going to be doing some visual stuff here that doesn't end up on the podcast, like on Thursday when Heidi cuts my hair for the pandemic. Love you guys so much. Share Geekscape with each other. And until next time. Peace. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.